Good morning, church. Today's reading is from Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. As chief amongst the mountains, it will be raised above the hills, and people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war against, for war anymore. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods. We will walk in the name of the Lord and forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles, and those I have brought to grief. I will make them, I will make the lame a remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, a watchtower of the flock, our stronghold of the daughter of Zion. The former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Why do you cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your counselor perished? The pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor. Writhe in agony, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon, there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hands of your enemies. But now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. He who gathers them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh. O daughter of Zion, for I will give you the horns of iron, I will give you hooves of bronze, and will break you to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. This is the reading of the word the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, please settle our hearts this morning. As we come to your word, we ask that you would speak to us with that divine authority and power that has the power to raise the dead, to give sight to the blind, to open the ears of the deaf. Lord, we need to hear your voice this morning. And so we pray that you would speak to us now from this passage of your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Of all the wonders that God has made on earth, I love the high mountains. I wonder if you like the mountains. Some people like the sea, some people other places. I particularly love the mountains. I love the majestic snow-capped peaks because they remind me of just how small we are as human beings and how great our God is. 
I love to drive on roads that take you over mountain passes, especially the windy ones that curve around and, and bend and twist and turn. And then you get to the top and you can look down that valley for miles and miles. Sometimes you can even see the sea. I love the untamed wilderness and the crispness of alpine air. When I'm in the mountains, I often find myself reaching for my camera because of the thrill of seeing that sheer beauty of God's good creation. I remember the first time that Swathar and I went to uh, Switzerland and we realised that we don't have mountains in Australia. Those mountains over there are so huge, so beautiful in the morning sunlight, those snow-capped peaks. It lifts my soul to be in the mountains because mountains are powerful places. I guess it shouldn't surprise us then to find that in almost every culture, mountains have taken on something of a religious significance connecting them with the divine. So in Japan, for example, every mountain is a god. Every mountain has its shrine. And you actually find the same thing happening in the Old Testament too because the Canaanites loved to worship their gods in the high places. And in fact, so did the Israelites. The difference is, though, Israel wasn't supposed to confuse the mountains with their maker, although in practice they often seem to do exactly that. Yet there are still many, many examples in the Bible of how God, God's people meet with God in high places. And so you read through, you find many examples. Here are some. Abraham uh, met God on a mountain when he was about to sacrifice his son Isaac, Mount Moriah. It may also be the same place as the Temple Mount. Moses met God on a mountain when he led Israel out of Egypt, Mount Sinai. Aaron died on a mountain near the border of Edom. Moses also died on a mountain near the promised land. Joshua built altars to the Lord on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Solomon uh, built the temple of the Lord on that hill which became known as Mount Zion or the mountain of the Lord. And the list goes on. Uh, Many examples from Jesus' life. Uh, Jesus went up the mountain to pray uh, with himself, uh, with his disciples. His first sermon was given on a mount. Remember the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew chapter 5. More than that, he he spoke of faith as the power to move mountains. When he fed the 4,000 with loaves and fishes, you guess it, it was, was on a mountain. When he showed Peter, James and John his glory, where else but on a mountain? When he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, it was from the Mount of Olives just outside Jerusalem. Somehow it seems built into our spiritual DNA that God is fundamentally up there and we are fundamentally down here. Even now, many churches are built on hills for for that very reason, or they'll have spires pointing the way to heaven. So my first point today is about the mountain of the Lord in verses 1 to 5. Today we're going to climb that mountain. and When we get up the top, we're going to catch a glimpse of God's plan for the future. Because God has a great plan for his people, and the good news is that we're in it. We're going to see what that plan is this morning, including its key components, the return of the king, the judgment of the world, and the final redemption of his people. That's in verses 6 to 13. See, the thing is, in chapter 4 of Micah, the mountain of the Lord's temple is more than just a mountain. It is a symbol, actually, of God's gracious presence with his people, and it is at the very centre of God's activities in the world. On this mountain, 
You can learn of his ways. You can seek him for justice. You can enjoy his blessings. And the law will go out from Zion. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is a vision of the future, a picture in which there is at its centre a mountain, and yet this mountain is something more than a mountain. It's a vision of the future, a perspective from the Old Testament of what God is going to do for his own glory and for the salvation of his people. So the mountain of the Lord is, in a way, a symbol of the church, and it really does dominate the landscape in our passage today. So this is my first point. The mountain of the Lord, and I'm reading from verse 1. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and peoples will stream to it. It's interesting, these same words, this passage about the mountain of the Lord is also repeated by the prophet Isaiah. If you go to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, you'll see there is a parallel passage to this one in Micah. And I guess Micah and Isaiah must have worked very closely together in their ministries. Both of them were contemporaries. Both of them speak about the mountain of the Lord with one voice. Both of them declare that God's plan for his people will be achieved in God's time and to God's glory. So this is Micah's gospel. In the last days, the Lord will return and Israel will be redeemed. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be raised above all the other hills and justice will be done and war will end and death and mourning and tears will flee away. But the mountain of the Lord's temple will be raised above the hills and peoples will stream to it. And notice the word is very definitely peoples and not just people. In other words, we're talking about nations and language groups and tribes. So I look around our congregation this morning, I see the outworking of this very promise. Many backgrounds, one church, one God. Peoples from all over the world, from Asia, from Africa, from America and even from Australia will gather together in the house of the Lord on his holy mountain to hear his word and learn what it means to walk in his ways. This is a picture of the church. So in verse 2, it says, Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Where was the church born? In Jerusalem. Where did the gospel go out from? From Jerusalem, through the ministry of mission and the sending of the word of the gospel to the very ends of the earth. That work is still continuing today. The law goes out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Well, okay, that's nice, but what does it mean for me to go up the mountain of the Lord today? I guess you might be able to guess where I'm going with this by now. Some people think maybe we need to buy ourselves tickets and fly to Israel and literally climb the mountain of the Lord's temple to go to church, as it were, to to revive the prophecy and make it come true in that way, literally 
by everybody travelling to the one place. But that can't be right because the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD and a mosque now stands in its place. So how can these things be fulfilled? Well, I suggest the answer can be found in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Speaking to Christians everywhere, it says this in answer to this prophecy. It, It says, you have come to Mount Zion to people who had never been there. You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyous assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. Do you see what the writer of Hebrews is doing with this prophecy, bringing it from the hope of the of the future plans of God has for his people to say that these things are now fulfilled through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian this morning, if you're here to worship the Lord, then you have come to the mountain of the Lord's temple. You have come to Mount Zion. And the fulfillment of this prophecy is happening now in your presence, in the preaching of God's word. Let me read quickly recap what I've said so far. In Micah's day, the mountain of the Lord was a physical location. Still is. You can still go there and visit it if you want. But it's an actual hill in Jerusalem that you climbed up to worship the Lord. But now in Christ, God has transformed this shadow of things to come into something far greater, which is a symbol of the kingdom of God on earth and of all that great and wonderful promises that God has made that belong to us as his people. So if you ask me, must we worship God on Mount Zion today? My answer is definitely yes, We do need to worship on God's holy mountain, in God's holy temple, with God's holy people, but we do that by faith. So what I really mean is go to church. Go up the mountain of the Lord to meet with his people Sunday by Sunday to worship with him. The mountain of the Lord is no longer simply a place in Israel that you can dial up on Google Maps. No, it has become a spiritual reality which is entered by faith and experienced by God's people by going to church. In effect, we have now entered God's holy temple and yet that final curtain hasn't yet been raised. We look around us and we see the church that we're in with the areas that need repainting and the different things that go on in our world that are far from perfect. We must live by faith. We're waiting for that return of the king that Micah also speaks of when God's plan will be fully and finally revealed. And then at last justice will be done and wars will cease and that true life that God promises us in Christ will begin in earnest. We have something of a deposit of it now, a foretaste and a real entering into that life, but we know that there is much more still to come. So we need to be patient. We can look forward then to all that God has planned for us in verse 3. This still lies ahead. It's beginning now, but there is more to come. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. 
They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation any longer, nor will they train for war any more. Well, we know that war still goes on, so this must be something that still lies, even for us, in the future, in God's plan and purposes for us. This is God's promise of perfect peace. It's a promise of a new world, a redeemed creation. Listen to verse 4. Do you like olives? I do, so I'm looking forward to this. Do you like figs? Oh, I'm okay with figs, but I'll take the olives. Every man will sit down under... Oh, vine. Sorry, I'm thinking vine. I've got olives here. It's vine. Grapes is good too. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. There's your garden. It's got all the things you want in it, your veggies, your fruits. Shade to sit under. It's a picture of perfect peace. See, Jesus is God's peacemaker. And when his government is in power, then there will be perfect peace between us and God, between us and nature, between ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ. Evil will be dealt with and condemned and separated forever. So today, I urge you to stand firm in your faith as a Christian and not to be discouraged by the many evils you see happening around you in the world. Perhaps those evils are very near. Temptations to sin, arguments, discouragements. They come to us all. Well, God knows and God sees. And what does Micah call us to do in verse 5? I think it's an important little verse, this one. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods. What are we to do? We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. There's a choice there, isn't there? A definite choice. What direction are you going to walk in? Which way are you going to follow? We will walk in in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So stand firm in your faith. Don't be discouraged by the evils that you see. Speak up against them. Do what you can, where you can, by all means. But remember this, the ultimate solution lies in Christ. God's plan for his people includes justice and redemption and he will bring it to pass in his time to his glory. So let's look at that plan now a little further. This is God's plan for the future. As I said, it includes the return of the king, the judgment of the nations, and the redemption of God's people in verses 6 to 13. So let's pick it up in verse 6. Micah says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame. I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame a remnant those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. Here still is the mountain of the Lord, you see. 
And yet now the people are being gathered. It is God who does the gathering himself. He comes to gather the lame, to assemble the exiles and those he's brought to grief. And the Lord himself will rule over them in Mount Zion. But there are no shortcuts. Yes, the Lord will come to his temple. Yes, he will reign in glory. Yes, the redeemed of the Lord will come with rejoicing and go up the mountain of the Lord to worship him together, but not before the battle is done. There is a spiritual battle. Our enemies are powers and principalities that are aligned with Satan. And even now, the attacks still come. Michael warned us of this. So did Jesus. But the nations don't understand. They don't know the thoughts of the Lord or what he has planned for his people. A threshing of the nations. A great reversal. Suddenly the world will come under judgment and on that day the church will triumph victoriously in the presence of her king. And we do that now every time we see a new person come to faith in the Lord Jesus. We do see real evidences of that victory unfolding. But won't it be wonderful on the day when the veil is removed and we see the reality that God has planned for us in all its fullness? Yes, you do need faith to see it. You do. And sometimes you need encouragement too. You know, once there was a time in the life of John the Baptist when he needed encouragement. He was in prison. Actually, it wasn't long before he was going to be beheaded. And he sent some of his friends to ask Jesus, Jesus, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Are you the one, Lord? Or should we expect someone else? And what did Jesus say? He said, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus was saying, it's true. I am the one. I am your Messiah. The king has come, perhaps incognito, but you're speaking to him now. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. So this is God's plan, isn't it? The return of the king. It's something that Micah also promises And looked forward to in verse 8 of his prophecy. Look at verse 8. As for you, O watchtower of the flock, O stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Yes, the king is coming. Yes, your Messiah will return in God's timing to God's glory. And that's what happened 2,000 years ago. We're going to be looking up to Christmas soon, aren't we? The fulfillment of this promise has already occurred. But again, you see, there are no shortcuts. The only way to victory lies through the way of the cross, that most unexpected direction that the Messiah took, to be born in a manger amongst the animals, the most humble of births. To walk amongst us, not in the corridors of power in the palaces, but through the villages and streets and byways of Israel. 
Atonement for sin is costly. Redemption of sinners is precious. It requires that perfect sacrifice for sin that only Christ can bring. And therefore, you and I, we cannot avoid the cross. If we want peace with God, we must find it at the cross. And you can see this shadow of the cross, as it were, drawing us toward Jesus in our passage today, in the reality, for example, of the exile that God's people must experience in verses 9 and 10, and the attack of the nations, this hatred of the nations for God's people and his church in verses 11 and 12, the gathering to destroy this malicious, evil desire to overthrow God's people. The exile and the attack are evidences, foreshadowings of the cross of Jesus. So the cross is here. It's in the experiences, the foreshadowings that Micah himself went through, the capturing of cities, the death of family members, the exile of survivors. That's the situation Micah and those with him had to face. They were going to be swept up in God's judgment of the nations, and yet they did not lose hope in the uncertain times in which they lived because they had the strong promises of God to sustain them. And we need that strong hope. We need those promises today because we face a very uncertain future. We can enjoy Christmas this year, And next year, our electricity prices will be rising by 50 to 80%. Next year, our fuel prices will be rising. We, I believe we will face food shortages. We may face very uncertain times. Nevertheless, the promises of God do not change. But you can feel the tension rising when we come to verse 9 as the word now dominates the next few verses. This repeated use of now brings us, it anchors us into the present from Micah's perspective. Verse 9, why do you now cry aloud? Verse 10, for now you must leave the city. And verse 11, but now many nations are gathered against you. The Assyrian army was sweeping down from the north like an unstoppable flood. By 721 BC, the northern kingdom of Samaria had fallen. It was finished. By 701 BC, King Hezekiah was caught like a bird in a cage. Only Jerusalem survived. By 586 BC, it too had fallen to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Well, for us today, the circumstances may be different, but the challenges are the same. The same challenges to persevere in our faith in uncertain times. The challenges of living in a fallen world do not change. We too have our Babylon to deal with, just as Micah had his. The fears, the uncertainties, the challenges of compelled speech, anti-Christian attitudes, these things do not change. So when you get to verse 9, it does sort of hit you in the face. These verses, we hear God giving his people a divine, I told you so, I warned you, I forewarned you, you did not listen, and now these things come to pass. You have rejected me as your true king, and you cannot live like that and be my people. Verse 9, why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Surely God is reminding them of who their real king is. 
Has your counsellor perished that pain seizes you like that of a woman in labour? Oh, the pain of the anxiety, the uncertainty of what tomorrow will bring seizes them like a woman in labour. All this is the fault of those lamentable leaders we looked at a couple of weeks ago in Micah chapter 3. But the whole nation is involved in this transgression, this falling away, this rejection of God. And they've invested their hope in the same things that we invest our hope in. Money, wealth, property, earthly power, privilege, so that in the end they became just like all the other nations around them. And God is going to bankrupt them. But in bankrupting them, he's going to make them rich. For where else have they to turn but to their saviour, their God, their king? Therefore, God says in verse 10, Writhe in agony, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labour, for now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. And there you'll be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. What an unexpected turn. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. Where must they go in order to find the redemption that God has planned for them? Right into the fire. Into exile, into Babylon, where they didn't want to go. There God will find them and meet them and deliver them. So this is God's plan for his people. His plan is to send them away into exile first, to humble them and test them and prepare them for a day when he himself will come to save them unexpectedly and yet just as he promised. At the same time, we see this gathering of the nations against God's people, against Zion. And the nations who gather against Jerusalem for her destruction do not realise that they in turn are being gathered by God for his judgement upon them. It's a real turnaround. These nations in verse 11 think they've won the victory and they're gathering against Zion to destroy her but they do not realise that God is actually gathering them to judge them. They mock Zion and they mock God's church and they say, let her be defiled, let her eyes gloat over Zion. But the Lord has other plans in verse 12. They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan who gathers them like sheaves to the threshing floor. I love this verse. It explains to me how God is able to bring good out of evil. The nations think they've gathered together by their own free will to destroy Israel and the church, to be rid of us forever. But in fact, God is the great gatherer who has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. These two things are both happening at the same time. They do not understand, they do not know that they've been snared by God in the work of their own hands. So in fact, there are two gatherings going on at once in the one event. On the one hand, the nations gather against the Lord and his people, but at the same time, God is gathering the nations for judgment. They just don't realise that they've been speeding the day of their own downfall. 
So my final point today is about that great reversal. I've called it rise and thresh. Rise and thresh. Look at verse 13, the last verse. Rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will give you horns of iron, I will give you hooves of bronze, and you will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Well, there's a promise. The good news here is that God's victory has now become our victory. God will give Israel a horn of iron and a hoof of bronze so that they become like oxen trampling out the grain that they might break to pieces many nations. That's the picture that is portrayed in these verses. It's a picture of God's judgment as a time of harvest, gathering and threshing and bringing then an offering to the Lord. I think it's also a picture of God's mission in the world today, a picture of breaking down the hardness of men's and women's hearts, the sinfulness of men and women, that he might bring in a harvest of praise from among the Gentiles. Rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. Get involved in the work of God's mission. Share the gospel. Call people to repentance. Invite them to church, to climb the mountain, to go up to where the Lord's temple is, to meet with him and learn of him, to bring in the harvest. Do you understand what God is doing in the world today? He's doing the same thing he's always done. He's judging sin and saving sinners. He's bringing glory to his own name. He's harvesting the earth. He's gathering the elect and bringing us into his presence that we might worship him and enjoy him forever. Yes, God does have a plan, and it's a good plan for his people, a plan that will be achieved in his time to his glory. His plan includes the return of the king and the judgment of the world and the redemption of his people. So in the time that remains, you need to choose which gathering you're in. For there are two gatherings going on, even at this very moment, in the reading of God's word. One gathering is a gathering to God. The other gathering is a gathering against God. One gathering leads to repentance and eternal life, but the other gathering leads to death and judgment. Which gathering are you in? One gathering is in verse 2. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of his ways so that we may walk in his paths. That's a gathering. But in verse 11, there's that other gathering. Many nations are gathered against you. They say, Let her be defiled. Let her eyes gloat over Zion. Well, that's a gathering against God. But in all of these things, God is sovereign, and in his providence, his purposes will be achieved. So in conclusion, what does this mean for me today? Well, it means, I guess, that I need to get in the right gathering. I need to climb the mountain of the Lord and enter his temple with thanksgiving. I need to go to church. 
Five points to think about. Be faithful in going to church. Joyfully, expectantly, faithfully. Just like in that vision of the mountain of the Lord's temple that we see in Micah chapter 4. Come to church. Love your church. Serve Christ in your church. Number two, expect opposition. For surely it will come from the world around you and from our own sinfulness in dealing with one another. We constantly have to struggle with that to maintain unity in the gospel. Expect opposition. But in the meantime, don't be paralysed. Waiting for Christ to return and claiming his promises, rise and thresh, rise and thresh, O daughter of Jerusalem. Be a messenger of God's word. Send it out. Be a missionary in God's world that the word may go forth from Zion. So our Christmas events, for example, or what just happened on Saturday with the, with the women's event, inviting people along there. We can take any opportunity and many opportunities to be messengers of God's word and missionaries in God's world. Perhaps God will send us far from Burwood to another place on this globe where people need to hear the word of the Lord. And perhaps he's calling you this morning to the mission field. Come to church, expect opposition. Rise and thresh, be a messenger, be a missionary, and pray for that harvest to come in to the barn. Pray for the harvest of many souls, for this is pleasing to God, and it's part of your reasonable service in his name. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this word of grace, this calling to service this encouragement to persevere in a fallen world. Thank you for your church and that you so graciously have called us to be part of this one body in Christ. We await the return of our King. We long to see you face to face, Lord Jesus. In the meantime, help us to rise and thresh in a world that needs to hear the gospel and is increasingly gathering against you. But even as they gather, we know that you have a purpose to redeem. You will judge and you will save. Therefore, we pray for the harvest of many souls, that you would be merciful, O Lord, and not treat people as their sins deserve that you would not treat us as our sins deserve, but that you would establish us in our faith and call us to serve you with joy and thanksgiving, for this is our reasonable service in your name. And it's in Christ's name we pray now. Amen.